Good morning. Good morning. I bring you greetings from the redeemed saints in Centerville, Tennessee. We have a few of them here with us today. Uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, why don't we all stand together as uh, we read today's passage. Brothers and sisters, give ear. You are about to hear the very words of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray together. O Lord God, our Almighty, our merciful and gracious Father in heaven, we ask in Jesus' name that you would hear our prayers, that you would... Bring your spirit among us, allow him to be active, and let the light of your word shine so that we may see your glory, so that we may see Jesus high and lifted up, that we may see the truth of the gospel, and that we can see who we are and who we have become in light of that glorious gospel. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Because of the day in which we live, you can't really go looking for a quote without there being some type of controversy around who actually said it. Um, so I'm going to quote Martin Luther, probably. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the Word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Him, Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battle fronts beside is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Strong words from whoever said it. It's a great quote, regardless. It sounds a little bit like Luther. And there are some hard evidences that he said something very similar to this. This is probably an embellishment if he didn't actually say it. But what is the point? The point is, as we approach the Word of God, especially for those who stand in the pulpit, we have to look at the very point that the world and the devil are attacking. And where is that? In our day, you probably have several topics in your head right now. 
For those of you who were here the last time that I preached, the most recent time that I preached, you will say, oh no, he's going to do identity again. You are absolutely right. Because <laughs> I really believe that's where the battlefront is. It's the redefining of words. We can't even identify things without knowing what words mean. Right? This was Adam's first task, right? Was identifying the animals around him. So I'm going to come to you today with a question. This is the question that we have to answer. This is rooted in the concept of identity. And the great English poet Townsend asked the eternal question in this manner, in what many believe to be his finest work, when he said, Who are you? Three words. Simple question. But profound. And frankly, difficult for most in our era to even answer, right? I mean, as we think about this, as the battle is raging all around us, maybe most notably around male and female, but we also have black and white, which is really just light brown versus darker brown, right? None of us are really white. Um, nationality. Liberal, conservative, left, right, what do those terms even mean, and where did they come from? Christian, non-Christian, or maybe what kind of system or worldview do you use to evaluate reality and truth? Or do you even consider reality and truth to be valid concepts? We get bombarded with the questions. The question... Sometimes, legitimately, every day, when we're asked, who are you? I'm actually shocked that in our rapidly collapsing Western culture, that they haven't gone after the concept of surnames, or as we would call them, last names. The studies show that our family names and even our first names are quite influential in shaping our identity and being able to see who we are and even in seeing the world around us. Who we are is important. In this passage that I've just read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, is actually addressing this very question. Who are you? Because it starts out by saying, now therefore ye, which is you plural, right? This is a huge statement. It says, now therefore ye, plural, <laughs> or, or in Appalachia we would say, uh, all y'all, right? So all y'all listen up, right? This is, this is what Paul is saying. Because something has happened to you. That's the therefore. Something has happened that has changed your identity or has changed who you are. The whole front half, maybe, of the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians is talking or addressing this very question. In, in the beginning of it, he has this high-level explanation 
of who we are or who we have become. He just states it right up front. He says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Which begs the question, well, how did that happen? I mean, what in the world? All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ are ours. Then in what we refer to as the second chapter of this letter, uh, we get the particulars of this supernatural event that changed our fundamental identity forever. Are we even really comfortable with this idea of a supernatural event? Sometimes we reform types shy away from this a little bit, right? But this really is a big deal. For those of you who have known me for a while, yes, I'm going to read through Ephesians chapter 2. When I die, I hope on my gravestone it says, yep, he read Ephesians chapter 2. Please turn there with me. I really do marvel every time I go through this passage. It really is deep and rich and beautiful and simple and amazing that we're just along for the ride. And you, has he quickened? He made you alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversations in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. So what is this even telling us? It's telling us who we were. And it's not pretty, is it? We were by nature children of wrath. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan had us in bondage and we were his slave and we walked according to his will. And then maybe my favorite two words in all of scripture. Everybody say them with me. But God. But God, if you ever want to boil the gospel down into like the, the, the shortest phrase, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, he's quickened us together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And has raised us up together 
and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. This whole passage is about identity. We are His workmanship. The word's poema there. We are His poem. We are His poetry. His handwritten poetry. Love that. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. Wherefore, remember, listen up all y'all, that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants. Covenants of promise. And here's your condition. No hope without God. But. But now. This is who you are. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off, are made near by the blood of Christ. You've been drawn into Christ by His blood. For He is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Again, this is just amazing. He takes us from where we were without hope. Straight up, no hope, to peace with God our Father. And in possession of all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Somebody should say hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, our passage tells us that no more are we the way we were. But we have been brought through this miracle. I like to think of it as a car wash. No, really, it's actually a pretty good understanding of what happens in a sacrament too, right? So we start over here, we're dirty. We won't put in money. You start over here dirty. (laughs) And then through this process, right, through, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you come out clean on the other end. 
you're just along for a ride, right? It's kind of like when one gets married, right? At 11.55, you've got a man and a woman who love each other, but they're not married, right? And then they get in this car wash, and at some point in the ceremony, they become husband and wife. They come out the other end as one. It's just amazing. And no, I'm not suggesting that marriage is a sacrament. But it has some of those tendencies. I see why there are groups who do. But this car wash, if you will, this miracle that happened to us, this mercy-powered, grace-filled, peace-inducing, miraculous transformation of our core identity and condition. You see, you and I are no more strangers. That's like an illegal alien. It's somebody that lives here but doesn't really belong here. We are no more foreigners. And this is like somebody who is um, maybe born of an illegal alien. They live in the land, but they lack all the rights and privileges and duties and protection of being a citizen. You're actually a foreigner in a different country. But you are no more that because it said, but God decided to do something else. Chapter 2, verse 4. Because of God's mercy, because of His love towards us, because He loved us, He decided to recreate us. He transformed you from what you were to what you are now. You see that? You were transformed from strangers and foreigners to fellow citizens with the saints. You are now a natural-born citizen. How does that happen? God's mercy and God's grace. It's amazing that it uses this language too because it's, we were strangers and foreigners, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints, right? It said that we were not part of Israel, and now it says we're fellow citizens. This is really interesting. So this is, this is kingdom language here, right? We have been dragged from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, right? Into the kingdom of his dear son, we have rights and privileges and duties as citizens now. Thy kingdom come indeed, right? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again into a new family. The Apostle John is very clear on this. You remember this passage? He says, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom. You're blind to it. He also says that unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into this kingdom. 
You can't even go to this land. You can't see it. It's not on your map. You see, your, your supernatural rebirth has made you a natural-born citizen. A natural-born citizen of God's kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, here on earth, as it is in heaven. So who are you? You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God. Your birthright has been changed. Which leads us to the next section. It talks about the household of the saints, right? Those who dwell under the same roof and are composed of the same family. The idea of household here is is bigger than than we tend to think of. You know, at my house, there's my wife and I, and we have four kids currently living at home. That's our household, right? But this idea, especially in Roman times, was much bigger than that. It probably included uh, family, your your immediate family, extended family, servants, hired workers, I mean, even your business. You think about the requirements around slaves in the Old Testament. Household was a big concept, It meant a place where you belonged. It was a place of refuge where you could go and seek comfort. It was a place of protection and provision. It played into your identity. It assured you of who you are. And this is what Paul is trying to tell us in this letter. He's saying, look, this is who you are. As you're born into this new family, you get a new father. You get a new history. You get a new future. A new mother. A new family. New siblings. You've been born into a new family. Changed your name and everything, right? Yesterday, Dr. Clark preached from the parallel passage, this passage here in Ephesians, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in that uh, chapter, it, it starts out, it says, if you are newborn babes, If you are newborn babes and you have tasted the grace of the Lord, then what? It means that you have been transformed into a chosen generation. This word generation means offspring. It means you're part of a family. In this case, it's a a different family that according to second peter or first peter chapter 2 grows into a holy nation this family grows into a holy nation which is exactly what it tells us in ephesians that you are now fellow citizens you've grown into you've been born into this family 
and this nation. That is who you are. And our passage continues here in verse 20 and says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This being built upon the foundation is, is an interesting word because it, it means that it's, it's a superstructure that is set on a foundation. Right? Which is exactly what the passage tells us. So it's like somebody built a house. We have a shed on our property, which my sons live in, and it was built, and then it was set on foundations. It's exactly what we're talking about. But this found foundation stone, the foundation here is um, it's Jesus. We'll get to that. But from the, the context here, the foundation is, I believe, the teaching of the word. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the living word. Right? The foundation of the apostles and prophets is the, the word of God that we have. Right? This is the foundation of the family. Of the nation. Of the church. If you build on any other foundation, what happens? It collapses. Right? Tells us here that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We talked about some of this yesterday. I think it's good to go over it again. Because we tend to have this idea of a cornerstone. Uh, you know, you see, the, you see the picture when they open up a time capsule which is the cornerstone of the building. It's usually up about waist high, maybe shoulder high, and it's full of historical stuff that they put in there when they built the building, right? That is not what we're talking about. The idea of cornerstone here is um, not only is it a foundation stone, but they used it to line up the entire building. Everything was built, lined up, according to this stone, right? We have to build according to this foundation, or it comes down. And this has been all through scriptures, right? I mean, this connection with the stone and the Messiah is rich and informative. We actually read from uh, Psalm 18 this morning, I think it was the opening, the stone which the builder refused has become the head of the corner. Isaiah 8. Um, for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 28, precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Matthew talks about this, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So we know this idea of what this chief cornerstone was going to be. We knew it was going to be the Messiah, right? And that the Messiah was going to be the chief cornerstone. But some of the other ways that Maybe rocks and stones have showed up in Scripture are informative, but we, we may not think about them immediately. And I'm just suggesting them. I'm not standing hard and fast on these. There's some controversy around these, right? So I want to take you back to Genesis. Um, when Jacob went out from Beersheba, right? He was in a certain place, and he tarried there all night. 
And he took of the stones of that place and he used them for a pillow. And he lay down and he slept. He had peace. And then what happens? Right? He sees angels ascending and descending. There are some who argue that this is um, a metaphor for him bowing the knee. He's laying his head on Christ. He's submitting to Christ. You can study that out if you want. Uh, Psalm 137 may be even more controversial, right? 137.9. This is the one that we sing in our Psalters, and they usually have a happy little tune, Right? about God dashing the heads of little ones on the rocks. It is a passage of judgment. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones, the Babylonian children, dash the little ones against the stones. There are some who argue that this is the ultimate judgment coming upon Babylon, that their children are converting to follow Yahweh. It's an interesting read on the passage. Makes it a little happier when we sing it. (laughs) Not that it's about that, but... So, So Jesus, as the living word, and the scripture given to us through the spirit upon men in the past, are the foundation... The pillar and ground of the truth, we might say, that this household of God is built upon. What else is interesting about this foundation is that um, it mediates between us and God the Father, right? It brings peace with God. It brings us access to God the Father, We come in contact with God the Father through this foundation. So again, I ask you, who are you? In verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, In whom all the building, that's us, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. This, this word building here is, um, it is an act of building. It's an active word. It's translated in Ephesians 4, I think, three different times as edify. This is an active, ongoing building process. Jesus is overseeing this. The blueprints are his word, his ministers, or his Holy Spirit is sort of ministering as the foreman, if I can say it that way, of this construction progress. He empowers the good works of those of us who've been born again, right? God ordained the good works that we should walk in. Ephesians chapter 2. So this, this building, this edifying, that's us, Right? We're we're doing this work. We are the construction crew, if you will. Think about that for a minute. Hard hat, because you need a hard hat. Tools, right? Provisions, plans. It's really pretty amazing. 
Just as we are fitly framed together, Dr. Clark talked about some of this yesterday. We have this idea of these living stones being put together to form a temple. They're tightly packed. They fit together perfectly by the master builder, right? Mortared together, I think you used that phrase yesterday, mortared together by the spirit. Oh, no, you said something else. What was it? Oil mortar. Oil mortar, that was really good, yeah. But we're mortared together by the spirit, right? And he talked a little bit about sometimes there's a little bit of friction there, right? And it just cements that bond even tighter, That little bit of friction, though, is why we need the helmet, right? Um, But it tells us that that this is growing. Stones that are alive are growing. It's no wonder people think we're crazy, because we believe this, right? We are living stones fitted together by unseen hands, Growing together. This word growing is really interesting. Um, It means to grow together to an extreme limit. The only way I could really think about explaining this was goldfish and alligators. Do you guys know this? Goldfish will grow to the size of the container that they're in. Right? If you put them in a glass, they stay really small. If you put them in a bathtub, they get bigger. You put them in a lake, they get huge. But I think this is a perfect example of these living stones growing together, displaying God's glory as what? As it covers the earth, as the water covers the sea. Amen? Amen. Matt talked about this yesterday too. So there's this, there's this interesting growth that is happening. It's structural, and it's organic, and it's slow. Can you see sanctification in somebody dear, near and dear to you? Not very often, right? But it is happening. It's the promise that we have that God will continue to finish. He will finish that work that he has begun, right? Now, real quick, it says that we're holy, we're set apart, we're called out, we know that. But then it says that we are a temple. The people of God are the temple. It says that we're the body of Christ, and he said that his body was the temple. And yet it's where God's spirit dwells. So God dwells. In us. Again, no wonder people think we're crazy. But in this, in this temple analogy, it's not only do we have access to the Holy of Holies in some way in Zion, in the New Jerusalem, with word and sacraments, the means of grace available to us, we become the Holy of Holies. God dwells. In us. That is who you are. We see this amazing 
transformation. We were without hope to the place where God lives. That is remarkable. We have worked down through this funnel, if you will, or maybe I could say the passage focuses or has narrowed so that we've gone from that to this over here. Even in that initial birth, we then move from that household of faith, that new family, we're in a new country, we have a new citizenship, And then because of something that Dr. Clark said yesterday, he was pondering this idea of Jesus as a precious stone, right? He's like, is he a gemstone? And I got to thinking, well, he calls us stones too. We're precious to him. I thought, are, are we gemstones? And I thought, you know, the, the Lord is taking us in the light of his word, and he's shifting us. And he's molding us. And he's turning us. And we see all these facets. So Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the foundational stone, apostles and the prophets, and you as a living stone, all of these the light of God's glory is shining through. There's that fire that we have in us. We are ablaze with the light of the Lord. This is that mystery of the church that has been revealed to us. It's absolutely astonishing. Even the Jews had trouble dealing with it, right? We're like, no, 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 no. It's a temple. It's actual stones. We've had two before. We lost them. How do you lose a temple? Whoops, it was in my pocket. It's like the guitar pick I loaned Joshua yesterday. It just disappeared. How do you lose a temple? But Paul shows us this mystery. He... He shows us all these mass, uh, multifaceted angles, right, of what the church means. This, this chosen generation, this holy nation. It's a nation of kingly priests. We talked about this this morning in, in the instruction hour. This household, this nation is the temple. It's, it's mind-boggling. We're the temple? Who guessed? We move through this whole thing. Our identity has shifted. We have become something new. Due to God's gift of grace, we have been transformed into something that is almost unimaginable. Something radical to the core. And then 
Verse 22 just drives this home. In whom ye, all of us, are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. This habitation is an amazing word. It means dwelling place. It means a home. But here's the one that I really like. It's a permanent dwelling. We move from without hope to permanently living in the same house with God. Wow. So back to the question. Who are you? As we see these stones in the light of God's word, we see these different facets of our identity. And in just, in just 45 short verses in the first two chapters of Paul's letter, he identifies you and I in the positive. We won't go into the negatives. He identifies us in the positive as resting on the chief cornerstone. And because of that, because of this transformation that we've been placed in and upon Christ, we are inheritors of all spiritual blessings. We are chosen, forgiven children of God. We are saints of God. We are Jesus' body, the church. We are loved of God. We are risen from the dead. We are God's foreordained workmanship. We are recipients of His mercy, hesed, and peace, shalom of God. Citizens of the kingdom of God. Members of the household of God. We are the temple where God lives. We are His bride by implication. We've been, clean, we've been washed clean, thoroughly, so washed in blood that we are totally white. Another one that's really kind of hard to figure out. We stand adorned as the bride of Christ in His righteousness. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Living stones. A city of God. The New Jerusalem. So in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we learn that the mercy and grace of God has transformed our whole identity. We should draw great comfort and assurance knowing that we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God with all the rights, privileges, and duties. We have been born into a new family and given a heritage and an inheritance. We have been and are being transformed into the temple of God, the very dwelling place of the almighty triune God. This should so radically alter our character, our thinking, and our actions. This changes the way we see. This changes the way we understand reality. This should transform the way we see other believers, our fellow citizens and saints. This should transform the way we see and interact with our spouse, with our children, and with our siblings. 
This should transform the way we see and understand fellow priests serving in the, t- in the temple city of God. And we should really try to get our hearts and our minds wrapped around this idea of God living in us. That sounds like the end of the sermon, but it's not. I have a call to action. As I've been thinking through this, there's a lot of things coming together. Satan is attacking in a very specific place. And I mentioned earlier that I'm floored that they haven't gone after our last names yet. And it got me thinking. Let's take it to them. I'm serious. Let's take the battle to them. Got a question for you. Who here has a biblical name? All right. Since you didn't get to choose that, who here has given kids biblical names? All right. So some of you may be wondering why I raised my hands the first time, because my name is Brian Evans. Neither of those show up in the Bible. Right? So why did I raise my hand? What? I'll get there, okay? But it's actually, it's, it's actually, it's actually cooler than that. So when the beautiful feet of those who were carrying the gospel came to Wales in the third century and my people stopped eating each other and became Christians, they took the last name because they didn't have last names. And they took the last name of sons of John the Baptist. No, really. Evan is Ivan, John. S is for Son, it used to be Evan's son. There's still some of those around. So my last name means sons of John the Baptist. Right? And so this is playing into this a little bit as well. In Genesis 17, when God makes covenant with Abraham, what does he do? He changes his name. This morning in our instruction hour... There was a passage that was mentioned, Isaiah 62. Am I going to get in trouble for using a phone as a Bible? I'm sure they said the same thing when they made books instead of scrolls. No, really, I'm so, I'm so encouraged when I come here, without fail, every time. The morning instruction hour is just wrapped around the sermon that is in my head. And I'm just, I'm just amazed at God's providence every time. But it is so specific. Because this morning we were talking about what it means to be a king, which is based off of the passage in First Peter that we've been talking about, right? You preached on it yesterday. But the, the passage was Isaiah 62, right? For Zion's sake will I hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteous thereof go forth as brightness, and salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. 
Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. And that was, that was the point of the passage, was verse 3, that we'd be a royal diadem. But it says that we get a new name, right? And then in verse 12, at the end of the passage, it says, And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And in between there, it talks about us being married to the Lord and our name getting changed. And it talks about us taking over the land and the name of the land getting changed. It's amazing. Isaiah 56 talks about the same thing. Uh, Isaiah 65 talks about the same thing. Revelations 2 and Revelations 3 all talks about this idea of us getting a new name. And like my people, when they converted, they took a new name to tell people what had happened to them. You know, it's in our, in our baptismal liturgies, when we baptize babies, we say, what is the Christian name of this child? Has anybody ever stopped and wondered, what? what? Why do we do that? Because in our church history, when heathen would come and get baptized, they would lose their old pagan names, and they would adopt new Christian names. This is not just an idea that's, that's baking in my feverish brain. This, there's a long and glorious history here. And as, as we came here and gathered around the changing of the name of this church to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure I got it right. It got me. All these things were coming together, right? Even, even the catechism question from this morning, question 32. But why art thou called a Christian? I mean, it was everywhere. I was like, I was, I was giggling inside. So here's, great, great. So here, here's my proposal, and you guys can all say, I was there when Evan snapped. <laughs> I remember it well. So in, in this, it's very specifically, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it runs through and it, and it talks about us joining a new nation, joining a new family, and becoming the household of God, the temple of God. So here's my proposal. We change all the names. Every nation that becomes Christian, I don't know how to measure that, but every, every nation that becomes Christian, but I know it's going to happen, right? That's right. Go and disciple the nations. We, we can do that, right? All power has been given to Jesus, therefore... Go and make disciples of all the nations. And when they become Christian, we give them a nice creative name like the kingdom of God. I'm not kidding. Somebody more creative than me can come up with a better name. But I'm, I'm, I'm serious right now. Christland. Christland. I like it. I mean, there's a Christ church is the capital of New Zealand, right? Um, families. I mean, if you really wanted to tweak... The God-haters, if we just all change every Christian family in the world, everyone, changed our last name to Christian, it would be amazing. Everybody they would run into would be a Christian. 
They're everywhere, right? It's funny, but you know what else is really neat about this? Is when God made covenant with Abraham, he promised that he would be the, his God and the God of his children. That's what we believe, right? That's covenant theology 101. So when you ran into somebody whose last name was Christian, you've got some data on them, right? Somebody in their family was a Christian. And if they're not behaving themselves, you're like, look, brother, your family's Christian. What are you doing? I'm serious. The accountability here is amazing. Now, here's the controversial part. You ready? I'm sorry, because you just paid for a sign, right? We changed the name of the churches, all the churches, to the same thing. Like Christ Church. The, the The church of the chief cornerstone. I mean, yeah. Like I said, somebody more creative than me is going to have to do this. But I'm serious. I mean, think about this. If every nation was called, what did you say? Christland. Christland. If every family, and I'm just going to throw this out there. If every family's last name was Christian, kinism would die like that. If you don't know what that is, great. Um, If you know what that is, it would work, right? Totally eliminate nations and tribes and tongues and all that. All the families are named Christian. All the churches are called Chief Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. (laughs) There may be some who object. Um, So it is a little silly here at the end, but I'm, I'm dead serious. Let's take it. To them. You want to you change our names? You want to change our identities? We're there. Let's go down, get a lawyer, go to the courthouse, and let's change our last name to Christian. Can you imagine the impact? Girls wouldn't have to worry about changing their name when they got married. <laughs> Do I keep my maiden name as a middle name? All that would go away. All right, so praise the Lord. We know who we are. Now we need to act like it, right? Need to believe it. Trust in it. And when they come at you with foolishness, stand on the pillar and ground of the truth, right? That chief cornerstone. No matter what the question is, the answer is always Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. It is clear, it is powerful, it is illuminating, it is encouraging, and we thank you for this time to hear your word preached. Uh, We pray that you will bless uh, the reading of it and the preaching of it and the hearing of it, that you would use it mightily to transform all of us, to continue that transformation of making us more and more and more and more like Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.